a Podcast One production. Jamila Jamil is an actress, writer and activist for social issues that range from mental health to climate change to the representation of marginalised groups. She's a signature mix of high seriousness, sweeping perspective and bellyaching laughs. Jamila says every twist and turn in life is an opportunity to learn something new about yourself, your interests, your talents and how to set and then achieve goals. In this heartfelt conversation, Jamila and I traverse the darkness of her childhood, her fight for social change and the importance of finding happiness from deep within. Try to be happy now with the things that you have access to. Getting rid of the wrong friends, eating the right foods, getting rid of the wrong detox products, unfollowing the people that make you feel like shit on social media. These things can make an immediate difference in your life. Go get those meds. Don't feel like you're broken. Don't feel like you're just treating the symptom, not the cause. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Founded in 2018, Jamila's community, iWay, is committed to breaking down different stereotypes in the world, teaching people how to practically and effectively use their time and energy to make actual change, both in our own communities and globally. In this episode, you will learn how letting go of people's opinions allows you to rise up into your own true glory. Jamila, you grew up in London Your dad is Indian and your mother Pakistani. You have said that you're dedicating the rest of your life to young women so they don't go through what you went through. Can you tell us a bit about your upbringing? Yeah, I have, well, I have an older brother and parents who did not have any money and we kept on running out of money uh, frequently to the point where we would have people called, I don't know if you call them bailiffs uh, in Australia, but uh, they are people who turn up at your door like debt collectors and they take all of your belongings. So that was a frequent occurrence in my life. We moved about 13 times before I was the age of 10. Um, I had to sometimes leave and move to different countries because the pound was stronger there. So we moved to Spain for a while to live with my grandmother and then we moved to Pakistan for a while, then London. So I just had quite a disjointed and broke upbringing in a way that hasn't given me any tremendous issues around money other than the fact that I'm just obsessed with financial security. Um, But it's also made me quite an adaptable person, which is great because I'm in an industry where you need to constantly adapt to new spaces, new identities, new people. Um, But it was tricky. There was a lot of mental illness in my family, so I was the primary carer from around the age of nine Mm. for a lot of adults and um it was just it was just a very sad life uh I was on and off uh deaf because I have congenital hearing issues uh that I was born with and I had lots of operations before the age of 12 I had my final big operation at the age of 12 and I don't know I just sort of I felt like I was about 50 by the time I was 13 and that's, uh, that's around the age that I was in a fully-fledged eating disorder. So it's not Little House on the Prairie so much. Um, it was sort of Little House in the Dumpster. Yes. is more how I would describe my childhood. But, um, 
But generally, I don't know, like I feel like quite a sturdy person for my upbringing. And I'm not one of those people who tries to preach to others that, you know, your trauma has made you stronger. So it's a good thing. I'm sure all of us could live with a bit less trauma uh, and be a bit less strong in this world. Um, But I do think that I am a fairly resilient person now, which has kind of oddly perfectly formed me like the Terminator for the task of being an outspoken brown woman in this industry that hates women. How was your school years? Because it's, you know, you had so much, so much trauma going on at home, having to be the primary carer at such a young age. How were you Mm. even able to do school and, and do homework and be, be able to sit in class and concentrate on what was going on? I just had to. I came from a South Asian background, so you had to be the top of your class, the top of your school. I had to get a full scholarship to my secondary school, and then the hope was that I would go on to Cambridge University and become a doctor. So, you know, there was just too much pressure. It's it's not really negotiable, and mm. it hasn't been negotiable for the generation before me or the generation before that. It's just that the only answer is success. The only answer is being really good at school. And um, what that meant was not having much time to develop social skills and you know also I think I was just way older than my years because of all of the responsibilities I was tasked with and so I didn't really relate to kids I was weird I was sort of ahead of them and yet at the same time behind them because I would go through these long patches without any hearing so that created developmental you know disorders as well as the fact that I was very starey because when you can't hear you you look at everyone oh, yes, all the time. You know your your sense of observation yes. like massively increases because that's how you become safe and you start to read people in that way and you also mouth read and so even during periods where I could hear I was still starey like I'm still a starey person. Yes. If anything, I now look away a lot as a way of combating how starey and weird I am. So I think I just freaked everyone out and therefore was quite lonely and quite bullied. Um, but it's fine. It, I mean, it, look, it was a very shitty first 20 years, but it's been made up for tenfold by <laughs> the opportunities I've had since then. Absolutely. And you, you touched on having anorexia and and uh, unhealthy relationship with food, which has obviously played a huge role in all the things that you speak about today. Can you tell us how that began and how that has then made you go on and to be such a such a loud and amazing voice in in the way that people and mostly women look at themselves and appreciate their bodies for sure and i look eating disorders are very very complex and eating disorder is an umbrella term for so many different relationships with food and different reasons for arriving at that relationship with food. Some people starve themselves out of control. Some people starve themselves for all kinds of different reasons as ways of clinging on to their trauma um, sometimes. But for me, I just got weighed in front of my class when I was 11 years old. We were all weighed at school in a maths class where they were trying to teach us how to collect data and make kind of pie charts and graphs. And so they used our body weight as little girls in an all-girls school where they then put our weight on a chart and I was the heaviest in the class and instantly teased and didn't understand why I was being teased as my weight was something that had never occurred to me as being a problem. Like I thought having a big tummy was something to be incredibly proud of and I loved my big tummy and I would only wear colours and shapes that would make it look as big as possible because I thought it was 
iconic and um and I I wish I could have hung on to that innocence for longer yeah but um I was instantly bullied went home explained it to my parents that everyone was calling me a pig and making kind of like snorting noises at me and everyone was laughing at me and my parents rather than sitting down and having you know a reassuring conversation about how they are wrong and there's nothing wrong with me were also horrified that I was the heaviest girl in the class because they are very fat phobic because my entire family on both sides is terrified of uh, fat because there are some members of the family who are very large and the other sort of the ridicule of the family yes and and you know Pakistan and India like they have very odd relationships with weight where you know to some degree you shouldn't look too skinny because then you look poor but also you mustn't look too big yes otherwise then people won't want to marry you either so for women in particular there's a lot of pressure on our size and so you're supposed to be like perfectly in the middle basically um but my family uh, were very concerned and I was immediately put on a very, very extreme uh, cup of soup diet, which is just hot water with um, yes. sort of salt salt and additives and a couple of dried carrots in it. Yes. And so for months, during my most like formative growing years, I just started menstruating. I was put on that rigorous diet and then congratulated by other kids at school and, and teachers even, and my parents, you know, I was weighed every day. And every time I would lose another pound, I was congratulated. And so I very quickly developed uh, this relationship with my body that taking up less space is good and taking up more space is bad and ugly and wrong and embarrassing to everyone, not just yes. me. And um, and then, thankfully for me, size zero came along in the fashion industry just to perfectly reinforce that idea. And I also gained access to the internet, which was fairly new, and Thinspiration websites where mm-hmm. teenagers would exchange tips on how to stay uh, as thin as humanly possible. So it was a sort of perfect storm of of sort of very much so aesthetic-based yes. anorexia. And I get it. I mean, it happens all ages and it happens now, it's happened for years, Mm -hmm. but I think you and I are both children of the 90s and you just gave me a massive flashback. I also went to an all-girls school and I remember in grade four, we all had to get weighed. It was something to do with Mm -hmm. what we were doing at school and I have no memory of exactly what it was, why we were getting weighed, but I was also completely traumatised by the fact that everyone was looking at however much I weighed. Yeah. I mean, why did they do that? It's Well, it still happens now. I have actually just had to speak in Congress around this subject on how we treat children around weight, weight discrimination and all these different things uh, because I'm so horrified to see that so many people are campaigning for children to be weighed in schools and it just doesn't mean anything their bmi is all fucked up and has a you know racist yes. and fat phobic background it doesn't even the person who created it said it has actually nothing to do with health um you know and so it's just very archaic it's very troublesome you are robbing children of their innocence uh, it's just just make exercise more fun and stop serving them absolute bullshit well, that's at lunch. It. If you're yes. concerned for their health and their mental health, make them exercise more, make that exercise something they look forward to and have fun with and stop serving them, uh, you know, just sort of deep fried pasta bakes. Mm. It is, it is if about that education. Don't, don't yeah. weigh them, don't burden them with it. Don't create apps for children where they log their food because that's what we're now doing for under yes. 11s. Wow. You know, with a reward system. Mm. 
You know, it really fucks up your relationship with food. So, you know, yeah, my, my journey with my body was just very a very traditional eating disorder story. Uh, and so, you know, I, I never, ever fail to like acknowledge that there are other more nuanced reasons why people can have eating disorders, but mine was just very classic. And so, you know, I took all the diet teas and detox products and pills and, you know, speed and all the different things that I could to try and fast track weight loss because we look at we look at weight gain or we look at fat as an emergency that must be gotten rid of immediately. Yes. We look to fast track of the loss always rather than slow, sustainable change, which if you're trying to get bigger or smaller, you should always participate in slow incremental change. So it's just, you know, I, I fucked my whole body up, like my endocrine system, my digestive system. I was taking laxatives every day from the age of 11 until 21. So it's extraordinary that I even still have an asshole. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't know how it's still intact. I really, it is the most resilient asshole. If I can brag anything on earth, let that be the headline. Uh, it's that I have the strongest asshole. Bless you, Jamila. I think it's why I don't do anal because I just like feel like she's just been through enough and leave her alone. alone. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This will be quite a clip for your podcast, Uh, anyway. So So different to the ones I've had before. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you know, it's just I guess because I remember what it was like, and I know that you know before at least I used to have to go and seek out. I used to have to go and spend like three pounds, three British pounds on a magazine that would trigger me about the way that I looked. Yes. Now it just finds you like a like like a creep in the night. You know, you wake up and it's on your phone and it's everywhere you look and it's just all over the messaging for young people. And we're seeing kids as young as four be hospitalized with eating disorders and being aware of their weight. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just, it's incomprehensible that a four-year-old is aware of their body image. The other day, my daughter, she just turned six, and she said to me, Mum, what does chubby mean? And I said, did you learn that from YouTube? And, she's, and she was like all shy and stuff. And I said, no, really, like, please, can you tell me where you, where you heard that word? And she said, oh, yes, there was, a, there was a boy on YouTube and he was jiggling around his tummy and someone said, oh, he's chubby. It was, and I'm just like, What? Are you looking I at? Be aware of this. Yeah. yeah. What are you looking at? It was it was really scary, Jamila. Yeah, it is really scary. It's why I'm such a you know maniac yes. uh, about it, and I won't shut up. And people find me very annoying, and I am very annoying. But you have to be very annoying if you're trying to create systemic change. If this could be done in a cool and easy way, it would have been done by now. But we are in a crisis. We are an all time high of teen eating disorders, uh, self harm, suicide. Um, uh, teen cosmetic surgery. So clearly, whoever's trying to do this in the cool, unannoying way is failing. And so therefore, I am here to irritate everyone into submission, uh, which is my greatest skill, other than having a very strong asshole. <laughs> well, that's it. And you've done amazing things, which we will go into. But going back to your life, you obviously had that experience of having the eating disorder and then you, when you were still young, you got hit by a car when a bee, when you thought a bee was chasing you and spent nearly a year in hospital. I mean, how did you even cope with that? I loved it. It was the best. It was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Yeah. Honestly, I look back on those days and I was like, weirdly last year was quite reminiscent of that time. So I felt quite fondly about it, uh, aside from all of the horror that happened outside of my bedroom um, in the world. Uh, but yeah, I... Uh, 
I was hit by a car into another car, damaged my back really badly. They put me on a drip of morphine, which was fantastic. And I had a really stressful shit life. It was really stressful and shit being, you know, living on 100 to 200 calories a day, exercising all day, every day, trying to live up to everyone's ex- you know expectations, looking after loads of mentally ill people when you yourself are mentally ill and suicidal. You know, it was uh, the the pressure of keeping up a scholarship and a music scholarship and trying to, you know, get into the perfect university to become the perfect girl. I was f***ing knackered by life. So it was kind of like someone just gave me a year out. Yes. Where I didn't have any worries. No one wanted anything of me. No one expected anything of me. People brought me pints of ice cream. That was brilliant. I didn't have to be thin for anyone anymore. I just could eat again. I could watch television again. There was no pressure. All the pressure was taken off. And so, you know, I I don't say that flippantly to, you know, to anyone else who's gone through something similar and found it very traumatic. I understand. But I feel as though my life before that was so traumatic mm. that actually just being shit-faced, watching Friends all day in bed was exactly what the doctor ordered. And, you know, I watched daytime TV all the time and I truly had television on 24 hours a day. I slept with it on and I watched so many self-help programs that I started to understand a lot about my trauma and I left that situation like a wiser, readier woman with more perspective and more understanding of how dysfunctional my life was because I was watching so much Oprah, you know, and being able to recognize problems with my life via that. So, you know, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Because that bee was, you know, on the same side of the road as me and I thought it was chasing me, but it probably wasn't. I feel that you've obviously had a lot of dark night of the souls, but that was a moment that then brought you into a lot of change in your life. And we all have those moments and some are far harder than others, but it seemed to be one of the catalysts that meant then, then took you on a different trajectory. Yeah. Well, it just sort of made me more grateful for my body. So it made me start to engage in activism around eating disorders within the modeling industry. And it made me stop 100% starving myself because I was truly starving myself, like starving, starving, like eating one red pepper a day sliced up into tiny pieces. So I started to eat a bit more. I didn't realize that I still had an eating disorder because unfortunately everyone, especially in this industry, was eating so little that it felt so hypernormalized that I felt like there was nothing wrong with what I was doing or how I was talking about my body or my relationship with binging and starving. Um, but it did knock some sense into me and it made me a more adventurous person. And I think I just stopped taking life and my body so much for granted as you are convinced to do because capitalism preys on women, women are 80% of the market. So we're the ones most targeted to not ever appreciate anything in our lives. We we must always want more. Mm. We must never be enough so that we will go out and buy things to fix what was never actually broken in our lives or on our bodies or on our faces. So, you know, I was freed from all of that very young and able to just kind of go out and live and live like a, you know, a wild person who felt like at any point my whole life could just be ripped from me. Yes. I think we've all learned that lesson last year now. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. How things can change in such an instant. You went on to have a successful radio show, a modelling career. You're an amazing actress. Yet you talk about being so lonely that you attempted suicide How could someone who, it's so hard for people to think, wow, but she seemed like she was so successful and she had this fantastic show and all this kind of stuff, yet they felt so lonely. How how was that, Jamila? 
Oh, because mental illness can just reach anyone. That's why it's so important for those of us who have the stuff that people are told will make them happy. Mm. It's so important for us to say when we aren't actually happy because none of this shit will make you happy. The parties, the, the lifestyle that you're sold on Instagram, people sit there and they don't go and get help in the form of medication or therapy or they don't change their life circumstances, even in just little ways like removing yourself from a toxic family member or a toxic lover or whatever. You know, they don't go and get everyday help that could massively transform their lives because they've been tricked into thinking that oh if you get that car if you have this hair mm. if you look younger if you look thinner if you go to this hotel and eat on this balcony wearing this dress then you'll be happy if you become famous then you'll be happy and so so we've been deliberately told that to to keep striving for these things that anthropologically don't mean anything to us. Yes. We don't have any kind of system in our brain that actually cares. Like, you know, I've spoken to so many people now. I've won a fair amount of awards, but I've spoken to people who've won much bigger awards than I have, including my own boyfriend who won a Grammy last year or year before. And none of us feel anything. You win that award, you stand there, everyone's clapping at you. And the reason they have to get so shit-faced is to try to feel mm. something because you don't feel anything. Success doesn't feel like anything. The one thing is irrefutable is that money helps. Money gives you access to therapy. Money gives you access to an easier life. It's an absence of stress. Yes. So I, I will not deny that the more privileged have an easier go at not being mentally ill, but mental illness can come at you no matter who you are, what you're doing, what you look like, you know, who you're surrounded by. I was manically depressed. I was suicidal. I was traumatized by my childhood and it was all surfacing. And, and if anything, when you are privileged, I think you sometimes feel even worse because you're like, well, I have yes. objectively nothing to worry about. I have all these beautiful dresses. I get to go to all these amazing places. I have, I have money. Mm. I have, you know, glamorous, a glamorous life. How dare I be depressed? So I didn't seek help because I didn't think I had the right to feel sad. Yeah. And that sent me into a, a deeper and deeper hole. And then on top of that, this industry preys on young artists. You know, you have managers and agents and publicists who don't give a fuck about you normally. And they just want you to keep going and keep going and milking you. And as a woman, you're told you have a sprint, not a marathon. So it's like, you better make the most of this moment. Don't take a day off. Don't miss anything. There's only one spot. Yeah. Men can have 1,000 spots, but there's only one spot for a woman. And if you leave it, someone else is going to take it. So you just get panicked and fear-mongered. I was sleep-deprived. I hadn't eaten in years. <laughs> like I was miserable. Uh, I had a dysfunctional relationship with my family and then I was being photographed all the time, like yes. hounded by paparazzi. And so I couldn't open up to, to many friends because I didn't want these things to get out there because I was famous. So, you know, world's smallest violin, especially after last year, but I'm just explaining how no, it's so interesting. important it is for young people who look up to and aspire towards fame and, you know, the life of an it girl or someone fabulous and fashionable. I know a lot of the most successful people in the world and they are all miserable. I know. And so don't aspire to that. Don't hold that up as I'll be happy when. Yes. Try to be happy now mm. with the things that you have access to, which is the right friends, getting rid of the wrong friends, eating the right foods, getting rid of the wrong detox products, unfollowing the people that make you feel like shit on social media. These things can make an immediate difference in your life. Go get those meds. Don't feel like you're broken. Mm. Don't feel like you're just treating the symptom, not the cause. Sometimes you need to treat the symptom in order to be able to find the cause. 
go stop spending money on cellulite cream it doesn't do anything and who cares don't st- spend your money on like you know things to fix what's never broken on your body spend that money on therapy if you can access it yes but work towards happiness now because it isn't going to come with the right car or the right hair or the right bone structure it's amazing advice jamila and a conversation i was just having this morning with a friend what makes you happy now my dog um cake still still cake <laughs> Uh, cake is a big one on the list. <laughs> um, my friendships that I have, and that includes the relationship that I'm in, you know, it's one of my best friends. And so I, you know, I'm still friends with I'm, the people I live with in my house are all people, you know, when we were just getting ready for this podcast, you saw in the background a bunch of people. And I live with people, all those, I've known all of those people for 17 years. Oh, They're beautiful. all friends I made when I was 19, and they, they all moved to Los Angeles to be together. And we live together in this little commune of people who've known each other since, you know, we barely had pubes. And so, you know, I'm so grounded by them. They, you know, I walk out of the house, like all dressed up for a premiere. And the last thing I hear before I close the door is, you look shit. And that's what I need to hear so that I don't become an arsehole. Uh, And they don't watch anything I do or listen to my podcast or care or read any of my magazine covers. Um, They just don't give a shit I will always just be that 19 year old to them and not in a stifling way yes they encourage all of my emotional growth but you know they make me happy they they don't care about what I do they just love me for me so that's what people people make me happy yes activism makes me happy you talk about when you were 27 years old you met someone who is now a very dear friend of yours who said something to you about the way you were acting that absolutely (laughs) changed your life he was just like, aren't you tired? Mm. Aren't you tired of this whole thing that you're doing? Because I was so sad that I was, you know, it was the classic tears of a clown. I was covering up my sadness with loads of funny stories. You know, I was the butt of every joke. Yes. And I would always come in with these very over-the-top, self-deprecating, you know, entertaining clown clown bits, basically, to make everyone laugh so that I wouldn't cry. And uh, and I think he just sensed that it was an exhausting energy and I just don't really have that energy now. I'm much more authentic and chilled uh, and I, I don't feel the need to, to to cover anything up. Now when I'm having a shit day, I just say I'm having a shit day and if I want to punch someone in the face, I just let people know <laughs> that it's best for me to be alone otherwise I'm going to punch someone in the face. Yes. Uh, and I live an easier life because of that. It's really helped with my depression because I don't repress anything anymore. Yes. For me, my depression was repressed rage. That's so unbelievably important. What therapies have you done that you think have really worked for you, for your mental health? I only did EMDR therapy. That's eye movement desensitization reprocessing therapy where you basically watch, it takes different forms, but the one I did is where you watch a kind of light uh, back and forth across a wall while thinking about your most traumatic memory or thought process. And so uh, that saved my life. I did it for like four months it's, it's, I don't want to do like 20 year therapy for me personally, like drudging all that shit up again and again every mm. Wednesday for $200 an hour. It just does not appeal to me. I want it gone. I'm lazy. You know, I don't want to yes. do the work. I want the work done for me. And so EMDR works very fast. It just extricates the feeling that is attached to the thought of the memory and just breaks it overnight. So I just wanted to do that. Because if you have the right EMDR therapist, it's just incredible. It's a speedy, speedy road to recovery. And 
a road to just being rational. It's like it's like EMDR organizes your brain. There are two shelves, irrational and rational, and it moves all the irrational thoughts into the rational. It filters them yes. through rationality and then puts them in the right place in your brain. That is the most layman's way I can explain it. But all the things, you know, I used to be terrified of the dark because I was abused in the dark when I was younger. And so I couldn't be in the dark until I was 28, even at night. So I never got a proper night's sleep. And then I had two sessions of EMDR about what happened to me in the dark. And I can sleep in the dark now. I always sleep in the dark. In fact, I cannot stand to have a light on. Wow. Two sessions, 28 years of lifelong trauma. What does it you know, do with that rapid eye movement? What is it actually doing? So I think there's a connection to our eye movement and our thought patterns. And I'm sure you're going to have 7,000 doctors tell me I'm a fucking idiot after this, but I'll explain what I understand, yes, which is that you know, when, we re- when we recall a memory, we often look up or when we lie, I think we look to the left or something, which is where the yes, creative yes, yeah. like, side of our brain is. So there's definitely a link. You look at when we sleep, the REM movement, our eyes moving back and forth. It's like our eyes are correlating to however our brains are organizing thoughts and memories and patterns. So what EMDR does is it manipulates your eye movement to a place where it wouldn't normally go. So, you know, um, when I'm thinking of a terrible memory, I'm having to follow this, this ball back and forth across the wall, this ball of light. And that means my eyes aren't going where they'd normally go. So maybe that creates some sort of short circuiting. Amazing. And it kind of literally breaks that circuit where the memory leads to the thought and the thought leads to the feeling and then the feeling leads to the action. Do you need to it's have it broken. a few times or do you keep having it? Or and what? I did it for four months. I did it once, once right. every like week or two for, for four months or five months. And now whenever anything new comes up, I just go again. You know, it's like if something else pops up, I just go back for a week or two. Incredible. But it's great. It's just like, it just I'd only done it specifically for sleeping in the dark. And then once it was so effective, I was like, let's just like clean up. Let's just clear everything. Yes. Go after all of it. Let's get rid of my relationship with food. That's really weird. Let's get rid of my relationship with sex. Let's get rid of my relationship with this, that and the other. And I've sent friends for eating disorders, sex addiction, um, getting over a, you know, a friend of mine woke up and her, you know, her boyfriend was dead in the bed, you know, that was just so traumatizing Mm. and sudden. And uh, she did like five sessions of EMDR before she was able to, start going back home again. Wow. You know, these are huge traumas that work very fast if you have the right therapist. Yes. That sounds amazing. Yeah, and it's mainstream. It's not some ramaramading nonsense. No, no, I've I've heard of it. And I I have heard of it being very effective before. You had so much noise going on in your head. There were so many things that you had to deal with. And now it seems that that it's a lot quieter than it was. How is it in that space? Yeah, I've described it before as um, like stepping out of a nightclub at four o'clock in the morning onto a quiet street. And it's only when you're in the quiet street that you realise how noisy it was inside the nightclub. And that is the perfect way to describe stepping out of trauma or mental illness. And I'm not saying I've got no mental illness. I'm sure I'll always have some mental illness. But I am definitely significantly better and just much calmer. And when you are a calmer person and you create a calmer environment for yourself, you know, I fired loads of people that stressed me out. I um, unfriended people. I unfollowed people. I just have created quite a Zen space around me. And I've been really ruthless in doing so. And because of that, now it's easier to spot, you know, where there's a ripple in the waters. Yeah. If there's just constant waves, you have no idea where the problem is. Whereas now something happens and I can immediately identify what's happened. Who did it? Did I do it? What do I need to change? 
how have I contributed to this situation? How can I avoid being in the situation again? And I can go to work on it rather than just being like, I don't know, I'm in a minefield. You spoke in 2019 in New York at the UN. How was that? Talking at the UN was great. I had to tell everyone to shut up at the beginning because it was really weird. It was at this event that, you know, was celebrating these incredible, iconic women in politics and in business and media. Uh, Really women who had changed the entire game for other women and, and really like carved a great path for us. And men were standing at the back not even sitting down and listening, just chatting really loudly over them. So I started my speech at the UN by telling everyone at the back to shut up, mm. which was a, How did that go an down? unusual way to start. It was great. Everyone yeah. shut up. Excellent. <laughs> I was like, do we not feel like women have been spoken over enough? I was like, the fact that this event even needs to exist, like women in women who make change. I was like, the fact that that needs to exist rather than people who make change is a sign that we're still not there yet. And you're here drinking and chatting bollocks over these women that I can't hear now because of you. So I started off by that and then I gave my speech and it it went really well and it was just a very surreal, odd uh, moment that I felt very lucky for. It was the same with speaking at Congress. I just didn't know how I'd gone there. Because I've only been in America for five years. But, um, how did it go? You know, it was great. It went great. And uh, we made a lot of progress. And there's a really strong chance that this year we might be able to make it to the Supreme Court and start to change the environment and safety levels for children around weight discrimination. And then we're also working on two bills around Photoshop. So creating a tax incentive for companies that don't airbrush their photographs, basically, not just Photoshop, um, and also getting rid of weight gain, as in muscle gain or weight loss products for under 18s, because we found that there is a a Harvard striped found that there are uh, heavy toxic metals, um, sorry, toxic heavy metals in boys muscle gain products. I say boys, but just traditionally they're marketed at boys, anyone could take them, and Viagra which is very detrimental, especially to a growing young man. And then there was speed and laxatives in women's weight loss and detox and Mm. diet products. So we, at the very least, need to make sure that minors who are still growing cannot access this stuff. Amazing. You were also one of the voices that successfully stopped ads being served to under-18s on Instagram about diet products. I mean, that's phenomenal, phenomenal. Yeah, it was good. You know, still a long way to go because TikTok uh, <laughs> then came along and it's every 15 seconds. Oh. So I guess that's probably my next big fight this year is I'm going to go after TikTok. Um, I've deleted my account so that they can't have access to my phone because <laughs> um, I'm about to wage war against them because of the damage they're doing. You've got eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds um, worrying about their weight now and getting yes. targeted with fasting apps. I heard a nine-year-old talk about intermittent fasting recently and I was like right okay well that's the next war on my hands and listen I'm not saving the world but I am at least you know the most effective care you will ever be able to create in eating disorders is preventative yes everything else is so hard something like only 30% of people with eating disorders ever fully recover really and then 30% kind of live with it forever or die and 30% kind of half wrestle with it um and so it's it's devastating. Really, preventative care is the only kind that truly is a guaranteed effective method of controlling eating disorders. So I'm just trying to get in there young and help the people who are as young as I was when I fell prey to this 
uh, disgusting diet and detox multi, multi billion dollar industry. doing amazing things and you have your community iway which is a platform that you built to share ideas and stories that mobilize activism and is also an amazing podcast that you host you had celeste barber one of our aussie aussie friends on the other day how how much joy have you had from from having that amazing platform it's my favourite thing I've ever been a part of. Best part of my career. Everything else I consider a moonlight. You know, I'm moonlighting as an actress, but really I'm an advocate. You know, I'm starting to use the word activist more carefully, you know, especially in the last year, seeing how people have literally risked their lives and taken bullets for their activism. I feel like maybe actresses and models have been given the title activist a little bit too soon, supposed to me too. So I think I might roll that one back and just call myself an advocate and someone who creates a platform to uplift other actual activists risking their lives. So um, it is really exciting and it is very fulfilling. And the letters we get about the fact that our work has actually literally changed people's lives uh, is astonishing. And we get thousands of those letters a day. So it's nice to it's nice to be in the middle of the most like despicably toxic industry, one of them in the world that puts out so much um, subliminal messaging about self-hatred in particular to women, but people of all genders now, and to turn that into something good. I feel like I'm recycling this shit into gold and that's really good. And the podcast is great because, you know, I'm super ignorant and I get to learn from the most intelligent and amazing people because of my privileged platform. And then I get to bring other people on the learning journey with me, which is incredibly rewarding. And then we all learn together. And there's no more of this pompous moral purity bullshit that you see on social media nowadays, where people who've just learned information, hear someone else doesn't know that information. They go, oh, I can't believe you didn't know that. And it's like, fuck off. You learned that 10 seconds ago. (laughs) Absolutely. You puritanical (laughs) asshole. Uh, I'm just not into that. So what I've turned I way into is uh, it's a learning space. It's an allyship space. It's wherever you're at in your knowledge or not at in your knowledge, that's okay. We're just really excited that you're here. Let's yes. learn together and let's make learning cool. Let's make failure cool because it means you were willing to try when success wasn't guaranteed. And let's um, let's make progress the goal, not perfection because perfection will never exist. Celeste is a gorgeous girl. What did you learn from her? Oh my God, I always learn from her. We've we've been friends for several years. One of the things I've learned is that Celeste offline is one of the most caring people in the entire world. She's one of the most caring people I've ever met. She's just so thoughtful and really, really gives a shit. And she's so authentic and fun. And, and things that we were talking about on the podcast were just how hard marriage is, you know, mm. she's got one of the most, you know, aspirational marriages on the internet and in the world and talking about how much they want yeah. to kill each other was so enlightening and such a relief to hear for the rest of us who are in relationships in lockdown and you know she talked about the fabulous work she did when you know all of those devastating fires happened oh, in your country I'm so sorry about that yeah. she raised 50 million dollars yeah um, she was amazing and she talked about you know and, and and recently her work with being able to call Instagram out for their clear weight discrimination when it comes to nudity 
Mm. you know so she's just a very effective smart woman and it's also you know on the podcast it's really nice to see the side of celeste that isn't just the joker because there's also a very very deep woman yes who's been through like open heart surgery and been like you know had me too moments in her life you know being deeply traumatized as a child by older men like she's just been through so much and and i think a lot of people were were really surprised to hear her her depth you know behind this like hilarious joyous lovable accessible clown that she she yes. is on social media she's also just this incredible thinker and she's a thought leader yes. in my opinion absolutely so I just, yeah i love her forever she joins if she starts a cult i'll be the first person <laughs> to join if she goes bagwan like that's it i'm sheila you're there jamila yeah. do you practice gratitude in your life yeah every day all the time not in a kind of you know like um not not in any kind of methodical way. Just a general, I have a general vibe all the time of gratitude that I've had since I was 19. Because, you know, my brother used to have to take me for a piss uh, every day for a year, several times a day, because I piss a lot. I have a tiny bladder. Um, and I was, you know, totally disabled. Mm. And I think that that time was, you know, he saw parts of me he didn't ever want to see. <laughs> <laughs> a big brother taking me, you know, to the toilet all the time. And so, you know, having the luxury of being able to go to the toilet by myself and have that privacy and, and you know, being able to walk around has just made me feel just so grateful for everything. And, and so I think I just constantly practice, you know, how great everything is. And I look at life as an adventure and I look at fuck-ups as, you know, a funny story for the pub later. Yes. I don't take myself at all seriously. I, I love this version of me that exists on the internet. I think it's so funny how seriously people think I take myself and they think I'm just like, I live on a soapbox. I never sit down. I'm just always on my soapbox screaming. And, and you know, I, I'm very concerned with public opinion. I don't give a fuck. I was so unpopular at school that like nothing can hurt me now. Yes. Um, school was amazing preparation for social media. Uh, and then people think that... I'm doing all this to make money, which is the like just truly the stupidest shit I've ever heard because you make so much less money. I just turned down, I, last year I turned down a $2 million campaign for hair care because I found the message to be harmful to people who don't have hair. Yes. Uh, this year I turned down a half a million dollar campaign uh, for a product that I thought in some way later would would be harmful to other people. And I didn't, it didn't stick with all of my principles. All of my principles didn't match it. And so therefore I turned down that money. I would make so much money if I had less principles. I would own so many mansions. I would have a better camera to do this, mm. la, this <laughs> zoom on. Uh, yes. You lose money, sleep, time, joy. Yeah. Uh, uh, and um, probably years of your life uh, being an advocate because people give you such a hard time, especially when you're a woman. And that's not to discourage other women from doing so. It's more to say, hey, if we all scrapped in, it would be less stressful for the minority of us who are doing this. Yes. Let's take the load off our fellow sisters and do this as one. It would be a yes. breeze. Men don't stand a chance against us. Look at what we did with Me Too. Yeah. Oh, incredible. Changed, changed forever changed the discourse around sex, consent, and harassment forever. Yeah. It will never go back. And that was just a couple of months. Yes. No, absolutely. So, you know, let's just all scrap in and it's okay if you don't know everything. It doesn't matter if anyone else shames you about it. They don't know shit all about something else. Don't listen to them. 
the, the point of the show, The Good Place, that we made is that the whole message of the show was just try to be better tomorrow than you were today. And mm. that's how I live. And I really couldn't give a f- how perfect anyone else expects me to be. Yes. I'm on my own journey. I'm doing my best. And in the end, my work will show for itself. I don't need to be understood now. I don't need to be believed now. I don't need to be liked at all now. I've got my mates. Yeah. Like I don't need a bunch of strangers on social media. And I think when we do need a bunch of strangers on social media, then we have a sickness that we need to deal with. How, I mean, you're talking about it now, but, you know, you have had some horrendous criticism thrown at you through the media saying such crazy things. Like, I don't know where they get this stuff from. Like, they probably, I'm sure they just make it up. Yeah. But how, how do you stay strong? How, in the middle of the night, when it's quiet and you're with your thoughts, how do you stay sane? Uh, I'm on anti-anxiety medication. Yeah. uh, Sometimes when I'm dealing with a pylon because it's just, you know, my brain hasn't evolved over the last 2,000 years, not to say that my brain has existed for 2,000 years, otherwise I would be way smarter. Um, But our brains have not evolved over the last 2,000 years. So when we experience a pylon or trolling on the internet, our brains don't know the difference in our stress response to being in front of a saber-toothed tiger, like in the middle of the woods. So I feel as though I'm being hunted and that my life is in danger when I'm being trolled. All of us do. Yeah, of course. And the most terrifying thing is that teenagers are going through this. Teenagers who aren't protected wealthy celebrities like me, who don't live in a house with their best mates that they've known since they were 19, yes. who don't care about the internet. So uh, that is a, a fear of mine. But, you know, I, I got through it because of medication and because of therapy and because I have a really great support system at home. And now I'm pissed. Now I'm like, now I don't, I'm not upset anymore. I'm not sad. I find the whole thing funny. When I was accused of Munchausen and people said that I'd lied about cancer. So who's ever gotten a job from lying about cancer? Which insurance company would like to hire you if they think that you've had a life-threatening disease? It's ridiculous. It would be be so daft this early on in my career to start making shit up about illnesses I have as if that would ever land me any kind of long-term sustainable work. Um, so that was really odd. Where did they get this from? Um, she calls herself an internet detective, this woman who only goes after women on the oh, internet. Yeah. She went after Hillary Baldwin recently oh. um, on the internet. She's gone after Lena Dunham, like um, Bella Hadid's mum. She, uh, yeah, she doesn't go after men. She doesn't use her time like effectively hunting down men who are like predators and bad people. She just uh, encourages internet pylons and shaming of women. And so she compiled a bunch of my interviews over the last kind of 11 years out of place out of order she uh, took two different versions of me telling a story about a car accident and said that they were two different versions of the same car accident whereas had she you know had any brain cells she would know that I was talking very clearly about two different times I got hit by cars one of which went very badly the other time was fine and funny yeah Um, but used all these to create the idea that I'm a liar and then the only nugget of kind of proof anyone had was this one video of Mark Ronson talking about the fact that I'd, according to him, lied about this time that we both got chased by a bunch of bees. It's just so stupid that this comes down to this. But this is how desperate we are to prove that women are, you know, liars or we are manipulators. So Mark Ronson in this video is talking about 
this headline from an interview I'd given saying we've been chased by thousands of like I don't know thousands but I said we've been chased by a huge swarm of bees and the journalist I think who wrote about it exaggerated it and said 40,000 killer bees I didn't say that (laughs) Um, but me and Mark ran away and you weren't counting them I once said it frivolously in a story it's sorry in a in a interview and then five years after that uh, it was brought up to Mark Ronson who couldn't remember the event, so therefore said it didn't happen and that I had made it up to promote my charity for disabled people as if a story about bees would help promote my charity about disabled people. Surely the fact that I was hit by a car and broke my back as a teenager would be the story I would use to promote my charity for disabled people. But basically, you know, let's definitely trust the DJ... Because he's a white man rather than the completely sober, always sober brown woman. Yeah. Let's just take his word for it. Mm. A party boy, definitely take his one word for it over mine. I try, I confronted Mark personally to come out and, you know, tell the truth. And I had all the producers from the set that day who were there when all the thousands of bees were like, you know, disrupting uh, the set and it, you know, made the day run late. I don't know. I know the story is so long and convoluted, but it does kind of matter. No, it does. Um, And I think my personal opinion is that Mark Ronson maybe didn't remember and maybe just said it not thinking it would be that damaging five years ago in an interview. It was kind of tongue in cheek and now didn't want to come out and say, oh, I lied or I made that up Mm. or I made it up because I didn't remember and I was embarrassed for not remembering because he didn't want to be accused of gaslighting a brown woman. So I think that's why he didn't clear my name. I see. Because then he'd get cancelled for having lied about me in an interview five years ago. Isn't that crazy? Because that one interview about him and me and bees randomly made the internet decide, well, she's definitely then lied about cancer. She's lied about this, that, and the other. She's a liar. She's crazy. She has Munchausen, which is a very serious uh, mental health disorder that we should not use as a punchline because lots of people suffer with it. And if I did, we should be very careful about talking to me about my Munchausen if I had it, which thankfully I don't because it's a very, very life-destroying mental health condition. But yeah, it was just very, it was very, very odd, the whole thing. And uh, that was the only time internet pylons have ever gotten to me. I've been through so many because, you know, outspoken women must be destroyed at all costs. But it never bothered me before because I've never been interested in being popular. That bothered me because I've been sick my whole life. And so if you've been sick your whole life and also you advocate for a lot of people who are sick, and who have invisible disabilities and disabilities, to see the cruelty and ignorance of the world made me just think briefly that this world is too ugly to live in. So, you know, I almost took my life last February. Wow. So I was just like, this is just too ugly. Like, this is, yeah. I can't bring a child into this world. Like, I can't live in this world where people think that mental health or physical health or cancer is a punchline, mm. where a woman would do this to another woman, where a man is too cowardly to clear a woman's name, even though I'm offering to put him on the phone with the producers yes. from that shoot who could clarify to him what happened that day. You know, I have screen grabs of the producers talking to me saying yes. I didn't lie that that's what happened that day. And yet this one interview with Mark Ronson was used by the internet to confirm that I am this kind of sociopathic, compulsive liar And now that's just my reputation on the internet. That's just who people think I am. That's what people think I am. And they've decided that that is a truth. There's no proof. There's no factual evidence. It's just, um, we just love, 
we love to build a woman up, hyperbolize how amazing she is, and then rip her down. The dis- a disgraced woman is our favorite form of entertainment. That is shocking, Jamila. What what stopped you from taking your life? Clonopin, like the medication. <laughs> Literally, I have anxiety. I don't suffer from suicidal ideation. I become suicidal when I become too anxious to cope. So it calmed my anxiety. I had uh, a bit of counselling. I hung out with my boyfriend and my friends a lot and didn't really leave the house because I couldn't because of the pandemic. Yeah. And, uh, you know, moved on. And then, you know, bigger shit started happening in the world and people started dying. And it yeah. kind of, you know, you can live with an internet pylon when people start to lose their beloved beloved relatives yes. really quickly. So, you know, I just got over it and, again, had a perspective shift. And now I'm coming for the tabloid media. And if you ever... Click on, retweet, discuss a tabloid article or headline, especially about a woman, you are directly funding patriarchy. Mm. And I feel very, very strongly about that. I have a, a folder called Gaslight on my Instagram page uh, on like the highlights and yes. it perfectly explains the whole story about what's happening to what's always happened to women in media. And so that's my new like uh, axe to grind. <laughs> that's amazing, Jamila. What is the best advice that you've ever been given? that a doormat is already lying down before people wipe their feet all over it. And so it's not so much to victim shame as to just say, to remind you that you have autonomy in the way that you present yourself to other people and how available you make yourself to other people and how much shit you are willing to eat from other people. Mm. We do have some choice. We do have some free will in what we put out there about ourselves that allows people to think that we will tolerate their ongoing bad habits and bad behavior that stresses us out. And so that is the single most valuable piece of advice I was ever given, um, seconded only by anything's a dildo if you're brave enough. (laughs) Gold. So, yeah. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, Those those are my two faves. And yeah. uh, and I think it's really it really like empowered me to remember that I don't you know I I will always be a victim of certain things but I don't have to be a victim in every area of my life. There are some things that I can reclaim. Yes, and and I am no longer that doormat. I don't take shit from anyone, will and you, it's great. Will you have kids? I have no idea. Not in this world. Yes, that's Jesus right. Christ. I'm sorry you've got a kid in this world, but I I personally don't think my heart can handle what we are becoming. Mm. And so if I see a big old shift, you know, maybe Biden being in and hopefully we'll get that twat Boris Johnson out of the UK and we have more Jacindas just all over the world, Mm -hmm. um, then I could contemplate that. But currently I'm not in a rush. Like I'm really in love with my life and my current career, which would be very hard to balance with being the kind of mother I would want to be, which yes. is very, very hands-on. Yes. And so it's not that you can't have both, but it's that hard. also comes at the tax of your then freedom and mental health. So Absolutely. I really just, I'm not ready to make the sacrifice that I would want to make when I have children to be present in a way that I didn't have people present for me. What's your greatest hope for society today? My greatest hope for society today is that the powers that be fund mental health. If we fund mental health, everything will change. The way that people talk to each other on Twitter, the way that people treat people each other in society, 
anxiety, the, some of the root causes of the way that people behave in bigoted ways, uh, homelessness, our GDP crisis, all of this stems from mental health care. If we were to offer children and young adults and people around the world free mental health care, their physical health would change. Uh, if we could create awareness in schools so that young people had the vocabulary to explain their feelings, if we could allow men to talk about their mental health more so that they then wouldn't bottle it up and take that mental health issue out on the women around them. You know, I think that's that's really what it is, that we take mental health more seriously and we put all of our money, or as you know, much more of our money away from the military. We wouldn't need a military if we funded mental health care. What is the lesson that's taken you the longest to learn? Uh, the lesson that's taken me the longest to learn is that it's not my responsibility to be understood, believed or liked. But that is what I have now learned and it's very liberating. What is a life of greatness to you? A life of greatness is contentment. That's it. Just being content with what you have. And I've been content with what I have since I was 19 years old. And I've had far less than this. Um, I I never want for anything else. I, you know, I heard an expression the other day that desire is suffering. Yes. And it really rang true to me. And so I don't long for anything else. Everything that comes to me is a surprise. I don't plan. I don't make plans ever. Mm. I never have any idea what's coming up next for me. I'm just always happy to be here. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be able to breathe. I'm happy to be able to hear. I'm happy to be around the people that I've chosen to be around. I, you know, I'm, I'm very, very lucky to be satisfied with my lot. And that, that isn't just because I'm now a wealthy celebrity. That's actually one of the more troublesome, gross, alienating parts of my life sometimes. Um, but when I was a young, broke teacher engaged to a man who worked in a pub, I was also content, happy, ready to spend the rest of my life like that. Mm. You know, it's just, it's contentment is inside. Yes. It'll never be outside. And if we start to understand that, capitalism will die. And so that's why they try so hard to not let us understand that. Jamila, thank you for being the strong, powerful, incredible voice you have been for change. You have made such a difference to this world and uh, I thank, thank you, you from the bottom of my heart for that. Thank you. I'm trying. I'm only human and it's better to try and, you know, make mistakes and get some egg on your face than not try at all. And that's just my belief system. So thank you for having me. <laughs> Stay connected by following A Life of Greatness on Instagram at A Life of Greatness Podcast. For more information and to watch videos on this and other episodes, head to sarahgrimberg.com. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate and review A Life of Greatness on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. A Life of Greatness is a Podcast One Australia production. Executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nicolich and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au.